The Chinese government is accused of aggressively targeting Western democracies with disinformation and hostage diplomacy. From Global News, I'm Jeff Semple, and on my new podcast, China Rising, we'll separate fact from fiction and hear from accused spies, whistleblowers, and others caught in the political crossfire. As the pandemic rages across the world and incidents of anti-Asian racism rise, listen to China Rising for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. A listener's note: the following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. If there's one thing I've learned from decades of crime reporting, it's to never take anything for granted. I witness so much devastation and loss, but along with that, I see so much resilience, passion, and perseverance. It makes me appreciate everything I have, because in this life, nothing is guaranteed. It's a lesson some people know all too well. I wouldn't call him my brother because he was like. Everything to me. It was my mother, my father, my friend,、uh, everything. Like you know, it was everything. I went to this kind of period where I just went numb. Like I couldn't. I didn't even know myself. I was depressed. Like I, you know, things were blocked. I stopped school. I stopped soccer. Like things were just different. Life become a different world. I'm Nancy Hickst, a crime reporter for Global News. Today on Crime Beat, I share the incredible story of grit and determination of Chetim Thor Kerjak. This is the boy with the heart of a lion. On January 25, 2012, police were called to a residential community in downtown Calgary. Here's part of that 911 call. Public safety communications. Hi there.、Um, I'm just calling to report、um, a gentleman who appears to be semi-conscious、um, outside of a an apartment building. Okay.、Um, I'm not sure if he's inebriated or injured or what's going on. He's been yelling for about 15 minutes or so now, and now he's lying prone on the ground, kind of mumbling. Okay. And where is he? Out front of the building. He's out in front of the building, on the south side of the building,、um, just below the first story balcony on the walkway. Okay, so he was yelling for a few minutes, and now he's quiet. I, I live across the street. He was yelling for a few minutes, and now it looks like he's collapsed. He was yelling. It, it was pretty inaudible, but it sounded like somebody's name. The caller said the man staggered, then fell onto the snow-covered ground. When police arrived, the man was breathing, but was unconscious. He looked like he'd been beaten up. His face was swollen, and he had blood by his nose and mouth, and he was suffering from hypothermia. One of the things that was a little bit confusing is that original complainant had said that the victim had been almost climbing up onto a balcony and had fallen at one point. That's Calgary Police Homicide Detective Dave Sweet, a skilled investigator who was assigned to this case. Detective Sweet said, "At first glance, it seemed like a bad fall, but one the young man could survive. He was rushed to hospital by ambulance. Meanwhile, across town, the events of that night 
would destroy another young man's life. And he's at the heart of today's story. His determination and courage is unparalleled. Okay, so my name is Shatim Thor Gurjok. At 24 years old, he's wise beyond his years. For starters, he speaks five languages. I speak Nuer, Thoknath. It's called Thoknath. I speak Swahili. I speak Arabic. I speak Shuluk and English. Chitim lives in Calgary now, but he's originally from Northeast Africa. So in Sudan, uh, my father was uh, part of the revolution movement, the SPLA, the Sudan People Liberation Movement. So he was there as a commanding officer. And yeah, we live in a place called Lair. And with a lot of soldiers, I remember my house being like a lot of soldiers. It, it, it basically like looked like I was living in a barrack and I felt safe. Lair is a small, oil-rich town in South Sudan. I should tell you, Chatim's idea of safe and my idea of safe are completely different. The life there was good. Like, you know, I, I, I can't complain about it. It was, it was the greatest life. My father was there. My mom was there. My friends were there. So it was good. We would go to the bushes and, you know, hang out. And yeah, there's a lot of animals there. And it's, it's, it's Africa savannah. So it's, it's mostly, uh, it's still a wild place. You can see all the natural things outside in the world there. Like people there live with animals, like, you know, when I was there. And it's, uh, yeah, people get killed several times by animals. Like it's, it's dangerous, but that is, people accept it the way they are. People will get eaten by crocodiles. People like, you know, kids, when we go to the river, people die, hippos, like they would kill people. Like, yes, but it was kind of something that was expected. People just have to learn to survive in that kind of environment. Yes, a lot of people were killed by something called quite late. I think we would call it here cougar or something. Yeah, it killed a lot of my friends too. Chitim said one of his siblings was killed by a crocodile. Another got sick and also passed away when he was really young. In total, he has eight siblings. He's the third oldest, and he was always closest with his older brother, Gatlak. We would just play like any other child in Africa, you know. We had no worries. Again, no worries is relative. Food was scarce. Chatim said he didn't eat every day. He remembers planes would drop food rations over his town. So the UN would bring sagam or maize. And yeah, we would eat that. But if there's none, we would like uh, the women will go to the bushes and collect some roots or some wild grass and thing like that. And they would, uh, we would, uh, we, they would cook them and we would eat them. Chatim remembers the excitement he felt when he heard a plane. When the UN, the Red Cross and the UN, they comes, they bring like donation, they bring clothing, they bring toys, they bring biscuits. Oh my God, yes. So they bring this, uh, it's called uh, B- BP5. So this this thing like is so nice, it's good uh, biscuits. So this biscuit, they will bring them and we would uh, eat them. So we were excited. But planes also brought trouble. 
Lair County, where Chatim lived, was a sprawling marshland. And again, because it's rich in oil, it's a hotbed for conflict and a target for militia attacks. It was during one of those attacks that everything Chatim knew and held dear was torn apart. They just shoot. They start throwing down bullets and shooting everywhere. And then there was soldiers coming on the ground and they just say Lair was attacked. Chatim was eight at that time. Gatlak was 13. They were separated from the rest of their family. It, it, it's just a mess. Like, you know, is uh, is really difficult. And uh, people just end up places where is that flight or fight reaction. We just start screaming and running everywhere. Gatlak was shot. He suffered bullet wounds to his hand and leg. So there we were taken by the Red Cross compound. We went there and then they flew us. They took with other wounded. They thought I was wounded too because I had a blood in my hand, my my shirt. But it was just the kid, some one of the kids got shot. And then I had the blood. And then the Red Cross would put those people who are wounded and put them on a plane. And then they transport them to Kenya, a place called Lokitokyo. We got there. My brother was... Um, was in the hospital, they performed surgery, they cut off his fingers, his left hand, like doesn't have, even when you see his photos, when you take a picture photo, you usually put his left hand in the pocket. I should note, Chatim's hometown of Lair would go on to experience massive deaths, human displacement, and destruction of property. And by 2018, Amnesty International reported that anything in the area that was breathing was killed. From the hospital, the brothers were taken to the Kakuma refugee camp in northwestern Kenya. The UN refugee camp was established in 1992 following the arrival of the Lost Boys of Sudan. As of 2020, it had a population of nearly 200,000 registered refugees and asylum seekers. Chatim told me when he first arrived at the camp, it was a scary time. He remembers asking his brother over and over when he would see his parents again. He just told me they will come. They'll come. One day we will see them, you know. And I see his tears drop in his eyes. I couldn't understand, you know. I, I just don't understand why he was crying. And then in that sense too, when I see him crying and then I'll start crying too. I can't you know, formulate this, I, I don't know. And then I'll come again. I was like, okay, where's mom? Like, where's mom? You know, where's grandma? Like, you know, thing like that. And just start asking this question. And every time I ask him, he's, he would start crying. And he's like, they, you know, mom will come, mom will come. I didn't know what was happening. I just, I, for me, I thought they just abandoned us. Like for me, I for a long time, I thought it was my fault. I thought it was, what have I done wrong? Four years later that they told us, uh, yeah, yeah, dead. Back in 1996, the refugee camp in Kenya became Gatlak and Chatim's new home. Even years later, Chatim gets emotional when he talks about his time at Kakuma. Life in the camp is, is something that, you know, so is, is very, very tough. It's not something I want to repeat again. Like, I would choose peace anytime just because of that refugee camp life. Living in a shelter here, 
is 100 times better than living in the camp. Shatim said food was scarce, and he and his brother were often targeted and robbed for their rations. On the days they managed to eat, he was so starved that he often got sick. My throat kind of hurts, like it's painful. I would I'd be eating something and crying, the pain is um, something like, you know, very difficult. Like I would have headaches, like a lot of, it's constant, constant, constant pain. Chatim said at the camp, basic survival and safety was never guaranteed. And he witnessed horrific crimes around him. Oh, like a lot of rapes, uh, beating, like, you know, people like there. There was grown men that ran away from war in Somali, Sudan, Ethiopia, because it is a place where you get those three countries together. So those people who run away from those kind of war, they would come and turn themselves, like they start practicing their power on women and kids. Jatim said he wouldn't even be alive if it weren't for his brother looking out for him. I wouldn't call him my brother because he was like everything to me. He was my mother, my father, my friend, uh, everything. Like, you know, he was everything. Years went by and they tried to make the best of their situation, but they dreamed of a better life. I've been deprived of my childhood. Like, you know, I can't say I, you know, it was, I got robbed, you know. Finally, a door opened. There was hope on the horizon. The brothers were selected to be resettled to Canada as refugees. Their first stop was Nairobi, where they finished their paperwork and medical tests. When I got to Nairobi, it was my first time to see myself on the glass, like on a mirror. The building was glass, and I seen myself. I thought the guy was in that glass. And then I told my brother, come, come see this guy. It looked like me. And then I was like, do some moves. And then the guy would do some move again. So I was like, oh my God. Shatim said everything about the journey to Canada was surreal. So when we got to London, it was the funniest thing because it was my first time to see a white person that is my age. Because when I was in uh, those places, I only see like adults, white person. So it was, um, it was surprising. I was like, because there's this thing my brother always tell me when you die, you turn white. And this white people, they die a long time ago. These are our ancestors. They died. Now that's why they bring food. So that was his explanation of a white person to me. It's like, oh, when you die, you go to God, you become white. And then I believe that. It's like, okay. So when we got in the London and I see a kid that is white. And then I called my brother. I was like, oh my God, these people have kids. So even me, when I was taking off, when I was in the plane, I thought I was going to heaven. I thought I was going up there. Like, you know, I didn't even know I would land on the ground again. Chatim was 14 and his brother Gatlak was 19 when they arrived in Calgary in 2010. They were taken to a house that Chatim calls the immigration house. They stayed there for 21 days. He describes his time there like heaven. The food was, um, you know, I tried to be careful not to finish it at once because I tried to save it for tomorrow. And I would eat something little a bit. and But and then the following day, the food would be there again. It's like, it, it confuses me, you know? 
I start putting some rice in my pocket and start putting some chickens, like, you know, and, you know until my brother caught me. Because I thought he was going to run out tomorrow. This food is not going to be there tomorrow. It's like, you know, because sometimes the UN will bring food, a lot of food in the camp, and then tomorrow they're not there. The clothing they just donated, like, is full of oil from the chicken. And it's like, what is this? Like, it's food for us. We eat it when we run out of this food. He's like, no, 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 no. You don't need to do this here. I was like, I didn't trust him. I, and I went there. I put uh, I put the chicken under the, the garbage. Like, I lift up the garbage. I put it under there. I say, okay, if they take this somewhere, I'll find it tomorrow. The freedom that I seen in Canada, the freedom to eat is, is a culture shock. Everything was new to the brothers. When Shatim started school in Calgary, he knew three words in English. Hello, yes, and no. My brother was helping me and was trying to teach me. And and I will tell you, out of all the refugees in the world, South Sudanese are the most uneducated because we never had... A education system like uh, the Sudan North, the Northern, the Sudanese government, they took those uh, education right from us. Like we don't have, like it's a different from other refugee. They might have a different education system in their languages, Arabic or different things. But in South Sudan is um, most of us, especially where I came from, there is no, no education. That is something the government doesn't want. Meanwhile, Gatlak continued his role as the parent. So he was uh, taking English as a second language and trying to upgrade his classes and things like that. And, and he was working at the same time, trying to provide something for us. So yeah, he would cook for um, us and he would try to show me how to make food. Like, you know, it was at that point like where he's trying to set me up and be dependent. Chatim joined a soccer team. Growing up back in the refugee camp, he kicked around a pair of socks or some balled-up clothing. In Calgary, it was the real deal, and for the first time, he played wearing shoes. Shatim has so many stories of the many firsts he experienced in Calgary. Like the first time the brothers saw snowfall or felt the cold air of winter. Like, you know, when you talk and then your breath, it becomes like a smoke, like that. So he come and slap me wow, on my face. And it's like, what, where's the cigarette? I was like, what cigarette? It's like, you were smoking. I was like, no, when you blow your, like the air, like it turned like a smoke. Then we start doing it. And uh, you know, we thought I was smoking. So I told him I'm not smoking. It's, it's just the breath. When you breathe in the cold, it looked like smoke. That's one thing about Canada that your team hasn't gotten used to. He's always cold. There's been a few very hot summer days that I've spent with him. I'll have on a tank top and shorts or a sleeveless dress. And then there's Chatim, wearing two sweaters and still feeling a bit chilly. He's learned to embrace winter, but he still prefers summer and heat. In early 2012, Chatim and Gatlak were about to celebrate their second anniversary in Canada. The year started off with his brother dropping a bit of a bombshell. He came one day and told me, guess what? I was like, what? It's like, I talked to mom. I don't know, my, my tears just dropped. 
Years after they left Lair as orphans, the brothers learned their mother was still alive. Chatim learned his brother had been asking members of the close-knit Sudanese community of Calgary to try and locate any surviving family members back home. So somebody got paid and then took the phone to that village my mom was, and then they told her, your son is here. And it's, 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 it was difficult for her too from the side because first time I talked to her and then she cried on the phone and she's like, tell me what is on your right hand. I told her I have a burn because when I was five years old, they told me I got kicked by a cow, by a cow, a small cow, and I was kicked to the fire and then I burned. Like all of my right hand right now is like all burned. I was like, I have a burn, like big scar on my my, my right hand. And she's just like, oh my God, that's you, it's you. And then she started calling me with some nickname that I even forgot. And then we start crying on the phone. And, Chatim and Gatlak hoped and prayed for this miracle, but never dreamed it would really happen. Then, just one week later, life as they knew it would come to an end. You can find answers to just about anything online, but what about those mysteries that can't seem to be solved? Spooky secrets which have stumped even the cleverest of clickers. Well, set the mouse aside because the myths have met their match in the Spotify original. Internet Urban Legends. Every Tuesday, evidence expert Louis Lane and skeptic Eleanor Barnes investigate the internet's creepiest conundrums, covering conspiracy theories and combing through clues to separate hoax from haunt. Together, they tackle the terrors of Twitter, TikTok horror stories, paranormal YouTube videos, and every unsettling internet tale in between. Each episode is chock full of disturbing details which are either truly demented or ripe for debunking. Can the gruesome twosome solve these mysteries? Or will they remain internet urban legends? Wade through the weirdest stories on the web and follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Internet Urban Legends. Listen free only on Spotify. January 24th, 2012 started out like any other for the two brothers. Chatim had soccer practice, then planned to have dinner at home with Gatlak. He gave me 20 bucks. And then I went to soccer practice. I went to train station and met up with my coach. And then I went play soccer. But when Chatim got home, dinner was not ready. He could hear music playing in the basement. So he figured maybe his brother was just having a nap. I was kind of tired. I was stretching my legs and things like that. And I kind of took a nap. I took a nap and on the sofa. And I woke up and the music's still there and the guy did not even come up and there's no food, there's nothing. And I just want to go and tell him, hey, it's time to go call mom. Chatim went downstairs to wake his brother up. But Gatlak wasn't there. It was just his phone playing music. So I went through his phone. And uh, I checked his last concert or his last contact. And I check we call last and we text last and, and I start calling them. His brother's friend, Mark, answered the phone. I told the guy, hey, let me talk to my brother. And then I hear his voice in the background He's saying, hey, let me talk to my brother too. Mark didn't pass the phone to get lack. Chatim never saw his brother drink or party. 
but from what he could hear over the phone, it sounded like there was some of that going on. He hung up and attempted to make his own dinner. He remembers that particular meal was a failure. His brother was still trying to teach him to cook. And then, yeah, and then I went to bed. And then the following morning, I got a call from the hospital. Chatim rushed to the hospital and found his brother in a bed, unconscious. I just found him there lifeless. So for me, I just thought like they got in a car accident. Chatim tried to get his brother to talk to him, but he wouldn't wake up. The following day, January 26, 2012, Gatlak died in hospital. Chatim never got to say goodbye. What happened next is all a bit of a blur for Chatim. He wanted answers. He needed answers. Chatim learned about the 911 call, that a neighbor saw Gatlak stagger, then fall to the ground. At that point, he still had his brother's phone. So Chatim began making calls. I was like, hey, so this is me. So I pretend to be Galak. I told him what happened last night. So I like, what happened to me last night? I'm, I end up in the hospital. I don't know what happened. He's like, oh, you get beat up last night. And then from there, I knew my brother was beat up. Officers were already investigating and took the phone from Chatim. In this particular case, I mean, we still do have a a witness who says, hey, I saw him staggering around. I saw him fall back and hit his head. But we have a witness from the actual house gathering that he had been at earlier say, hey, no, he was in a fight. He gotten into an altercation with a couple people. He was able to provide us a nickname of one of them. But um, he didn't really know these guys well. And we need to go out and find the other people that are part of that gathering. Calgary Police Homicide Detective Dave Sweet introduced himself at the hospital. I knew that he was a brother, and I knew that he was a uh, refugee from the South Sudan, and I knew that there was a family that um, was desperate to try and find answers in relation to what had happened to him and uh, who had actually uh, had hurt him. Detective Sweet promised he would get answers. We uh, live in a country where we're not obliged to uh, speak to the police if we don't wish to, and uh, and not everybody takes the opportunity to talk to us. So in this particular case, we had some uh, early challenges um, in relation to filling in all the details. It turned out Gatlak went to a party. He and a lot of the party goers were drinking. Others were doing drugs. When investigators were able to track down witnesses, they confirmed there was a fight. Gatlak was hit several times in the head with a frying pan. Police searched the home. And uh, one of the things I'll always remember about this case is is the uh, frying pan being found on the, the porch. And if you see photographs of the frying pan, it's an orange frying pan with a black handle. And the whole entire base of the frying pan has been completely dented in. And uh, to see it is actually shocking. You wouldn't believe that uh, that a frying pan could in fact uh, be dented that severely when it uh, was striking a, a person. An autopsy confirmed the witness accounts and showed he had been hit five times or struck his head on five separate occasions. 
Basically, it showed his death was not consistent with a single fall from 10 to 20 feet. Well, it was multiple blunt force trauma, which is the which is the key to the finding that it's related to homicide. And then the other piece to that is there's a witnessed assault. But identifying who was in the fight and who killed Gatlak was the real challenge for police. Witnesses had given police names, but they were all nicknames. And police now had to figure out who they all were. And when we're talking about nicknames, it's, you know, it's nicknames like it was Lucky and it was Tony Montana and it was Kush. But we don't know who these people are. Like the offenders after they um, beat him, they removed him from the residence completely and they took him across the street. And that's where he was found eventually by the police. The only thing we really had was a bent frying pan left on a porch. The challenge there then is, is even if we do find DNA, for example, on that frying pan, is attributing that person's DNA to the assault and not because they've been scrambling eggs earlier that day. On the surface, this case seemed pretty straightforward, but it really wasn't. It appeared to hit a dead end. You need to uh, have some patience because it doesn't always come really easy. I always, through my experience in the unit, I've kind of come to believe that if we haven't identified a suspect, like a solid suspect within the first three or four days of an investigation, that we're likely into it for the long haul. And when the long haul is anywhere between 10 and 24 months, if ever. In the meantime, without his brother, Chatim's life was on a downward spiral. Suddenly, he was all alone, and he was only 15 years old. For a while, Chatim said he slept at transit stations and in different city parks. Fortunately, that didn't last long. Children's Services in Alberta took him into care. At that time, Chatim also had to tell his mom, who he had just reconnected with, the horrible news. You know, for me, it was very difficult because my mom, knowing that we are alive, was a relief. And then deliver news again a week later, saying that one is dead. And this is when Chatim's belief in the goodness of others really became obvious. His soccer family arranged to have his mother come to Calgary for Gatlak's funeral. So the soccer association, the Calgary Minor Soccer Association, huge support for me and is and with um, NSD at the time where I was playing uh, Southwest United. So they have did an amazing job. Like I didn't even do much. Like they have organized everything. They have paid everything and they got the lawyers. What should have been a happy reunion was instead filled with so much pain. In fact, it was so traumatic that Chatim doesn't recall that special moment when he saw his mother. I was blurred, like my head can't even, like I don't, I didn't even remember having interaction with her. I went to this kind of period where I just went numb. Like I couldn't, I didn't even know myself. Chatim's mother couldn't stay. She was only able to come for the funeral, then return to Sudan to care for his siblings. Shatim said darkness consumed him. I was depressed. Like, I, you know, things were blocked. I stopped school. I stopped soccer. Like, 
think we're just different. Life become a different world. Meanwhile, Children's Services worked with Chatim and set him up to live independently. Like, I don't even know how to repay them back. Like, these giants in my life, like the UN, Red Cross, immigrations, husband, family, like, what they have done for me and, you know, is, is something unpayable, you know. Audrey Martin was a frontline worker with Aspen Family Services, a nonprofit agency that's now known as Trellis. They work with children, youth, and families, and their programs focus on improving access to resources and community support to deal with challenges like Chatim's. Martin became his support worker. I think he was in our program for about two or three years. He was he was kind of a longer-term youth that worked with us. And him, not because he struggled so much, but because it was just kind of like this relationship where he was doing he was doing well, but he also kind of still needs that, that bit of a push um, and to kind of, you know, uh, sharpen those skills, I guess, like cooking and, and figuring out how to, you know, pay bills and, and move out on his own and kind of walk alongside, also recognizing that he had had a lot of loss in his life and how we could support him in that way. Martin said she saw Chatim grow and thrive in spite of the adversity he faced. I'd, I'd say Chatim's situation is absolutely unique. I think Chatim as a, a person, as a human, is absolutely unique and incredibly resilient. Him and I have had many conversations through the years and we're still in touch. Um, um, well, even now, obviously, as, as we're talking, um, I think his situation and him as a, a human is very unique and he's very resilient and how he's overcome so much adversity in his life and is still, I remember when I first met Shatim when we started to get to know each other, he's like, I'm going to work for United Nations one day. Like, that's my goal. Because we sit down and say, like, what are your goals? What do you want to do? Um, he's like, I want to go to law school. I want to work for United Nations. And I am one day going to go back to Sudan and turn things around. Like, that was his goal from the get-go. What was very clear to those who worked with Jatim is how easily his life could have gone in a different direction. So some youth in the program um, are, are not in a place where they're, they're coping as well with their, their trauma histories. And, and perhaps, you know, they, they take a different path and begin coping with drugs and alcohol or become involved in, in gang involvement and take different paths. So we work with those youth where they're at and try to, you know, get them on a different path. But Shatim, it almost seemed like he kind of, he already had his mind made up of what his path was going to be. Shatim vowed to make his brother proud. He's an incredible human being and, and we had that really human connection. And I think that's kind of the magic that is Shatim, that he's, he shows up in his charismatic, really caring, enthusiastic self with kind of everybody he meets. And that's, that's really special. Chatim not only learned English, but he excelled in school. He got a soccer scholarship to Mount Royal in Calgary and became the first member of his family to attend university. He has two jobs. Both are working with at-risk youth. So Chatim is a support worker. And so Chatim does one-to-one uh, -one support for vulnerable youth, uh, helping them engage in programming, helping them connect back into their communities, 
helping them connect back with their natural support, so friends and family, um, life skill development, um, peer support, so being able to just be able to navigate um, certain situations and whether or not someone might be in crisis. So kind of that one-to-one support uh, and really just helping them kind of grow and, and work through their own journey and connect back into the community. That's Tyler Wilson, one of Chitim's managers at a social services agency that supports homeless youth. There's people like the team on this, on this earth that, you know, are just born to do this kind of work. And there's certain skills that just can't be taught. And that's what we see with your team. Uh, and it's just his positivity, his, uh, his experience living um, through all of his personal stuff uh, has really been super helpful. And uh, he really just has this way of relating with the youth that um, it's just a quite, quite incredible thing to watch. While juggling school and work, Chatim also volunteers his time to help others. He mentors youth in the Sudanese community through youth leadership and empowerment events and a youth soccer team. I use coaching as a mentoring too. So in different spaces, so whether you want sport, yes, I will try to help you. You want to chat, trying to tell you what I have achieved, what I'm going through. You know, I will show you too that, you know, Canada is bigger than being on the street. Canada is such a good country than uh, selling drugs or being overdosed, you know, using. Canada is bigger than that. Meanwhile, back in 2012, Gatlak's case appeared to go cold. In the months following his death, Chatim kept in contact with Detective Dave Sweet. His brother was somebody that was always uh, vested and interested in the investigation, would check in every once in a while. Of course, the family had to wait a long time for there to be some sort of resolution. And so Chatim would would uh, call me every once in a while and just sort of check in. And during those times he'd check in, uh, he would uh, certainly nudge me uh, to keep going and to, you know, remind me that there wasn't a resolution yet, put a little bit of fire under my pants. Investigators never forgot about Chatim or finding the people responsible for his brother's death. But the case just took some time to solve. Police were finally able to identify the partygoers behind the nicknames. And people's guards go down. So sometimes time is, as an investigator, can be an advantage to us. I think... They saw it as, uh, oh my gosh, like, I can't believe the guy that we beat up died. I think that's how they probably saw it. I'm sure at some point in time, they become just very comfortable with the knowledge that they just, they, they, they got away with it, I guess. It's often when things seemingly go quiet in an investigation, the techniques are being used behind the scenes. Police had been building a case against the suspects, and when they had gathered enough evidence, they got a court order to intercept phone conversations. So it's about two years later, yeah, when we, um, when, you know, our investigation kind of ramps up to a point where, you know, we've now listened uh, over wiretaps. We've helped corroborate some of the uh, early statements of our witnesses through admissions made by the offenders on the, on the wire. Admissions in relation to, you know, being at the party and, you know, being involved. And then this sort of, uh, I think one of the the, the, the young person had, had, had tried to come up with a story on how um, 
his DNA ended up on the frying pan itself and that he had been cooking eggs earlier and he was like looking for somebody to basically be a witness to that for him and just like little bits you know it's not these are not um confessions you know you know they're gonna take you from point a to point z uh, with every detail filled in but they're just little they're little affirmations little confirmations that yes um the people that the witnesses have identified are the people that are involved and what each person's role actually is and then an arrest A 19-year-old is facing second-degree murder charges in connection with a homicide case dating back now more than two years. 20-year-old Galak Thor Metgerjok was attacked at a party January 25th of 2012. He died in hospital the next day from blunt force trauma. The suspect is now in custody. Nancy Hicks is at police headquarters with the latest. Nancy. Gord, police tell us they arrested the 19-year-old at his home earlier today. We can't release his name because he was 17 at the time of the alleged offense and he is protected under the Youth Criminal Justice Act. Police say that there will be one more person charged, but they've been unable to track that suspect down yet. Investigators tell us that these two men were suspects early on in the investigation, but it took some time to put the case together and actually lay the charges. These individuals were known to each other prior to the party, and this was a dispute between several individuals that escalated into a deadly confrontation. The next day, a second man was arrested in the case. Anthony Brothers was also charged with second-degree murder. We looked at the victim's medical records, the autopsy findings, the statements made by our first responding police officers, statements made by the party goers that were there that night, and then of course the intercepted private communications. In this particular investigation, um, once they were arrested, they were interviewed, and it was a result of um, brother's interview that he goes on to make even further admissions and confessions to the police around his role. Neither accused stood trial. Instead, both pleaded guilty to the lesser charge of manslaughter. I should add, the youth in this case, whose identity was protected under the Youth Criminal Justice Act, was sentenced as an adult, so I can now name him. His name is Mark Pius. According to an agreed statement of facts, on January 24, 2012, Gatlack went to a small house party with some friends including Mark Pius, the friend Jatim called from his brother's phone. Court heard Gatlak was drinking. A lot of others, including Pius, were doing drugs like cocaine. Jatim told me his brother wasn't known to drink, so he wasn't surprised to learn consuming alcohol hit him hard. He became extremely intoxicated. That led to him being asked to leave the party. As he stumbled, Pius, along with the second accused, Anthony Brothers, began to physically remove Gatlak from the party. At first, they put their arms under his and lifted him up, but eventually they dragged him. Court heard Gatlak began to flail around. He kicked his legs and swung his arms. One of those swings hit Pius. Pius admitted that's when he took a frying pan and hit him in the head over and over. The two accused then took Gatlak outside and continued their assault. They both hit and kicked Gatlak while he was on the ground. 
They left him outside in the cold and went back to the party. Not long after, police responded to the neighbor's 911 call and found Getlack unconscious. Emotions ran high in a Calgary courtroom today as a Calgary man finally got some closure in his brother's murder. He was viciously beaten to death at a house party in 2012. Now, one of the men responsible is going to prison. Our Nancy Hicks was in court, and Nancy, the judge decided to sentence the accused as an adult. Linda, the man was only 17 when the murder happened, but he's 20 now, and we are allowed to name him as he's been sentenced as an adult. Mark Pius is now sentenced to four years in jail for the manslaughter death of Galak Metkerjok. Pius is the second person to be sentenced for Metkerjok's death. He has previously served his time in a youth facility. He will now be moved to a federal institution. Metkerjok died after being attacked at a house party in January of 2012. His death orphaned his brother Chatim. They came to Canada as refugees. Well, it was really hard to stand seeing someone that took everything that I had away from my life. So it was difficult but I had to put myself together and be strong enough. And my brother, like, he was everything to me. He's a role model, friend, and brother. Like I say, like, without him, I wouldn't be alive today. Today, during sentencing, Pius gave an apology. He said, I can't imagine the pain I've caused. I haven't just ruined my life, but another family's also. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Chatim says he accepts the apology. It doesn't lessen his pain, but he respects that Pius apologized. And now, after credit for time served, Pius has just over two and a half years left in his sentence. Court also heard Mark Pius is diagnosed as having schizophrenia. Initially, he pleaded not guilty in the case, but a defense of not criminally responsible was not accepted. According to the Parole Board of Canada, Pius got into some trouble during his time in prison. He was accused of assaulting another inmate. Those charges were later withdrawn. On another occasion, he was found in possession of brew, jail-made alcohol, and he was placed in segregation. He also faced institutional charges for verbally resisting orders from officers and using profanities against officers. Documents state he was found to cheek his medications, then later refused medications and psychiatric treatment. The Correctional Service of Canada assessed Pius as a high risk to reoffend violently and generally. He was released from prison on statutory release in 2016, but that release was later revoked. He was released again with conditions to follow until his sentence expired in April of 2018. Anthony Brothers was sentenced to four years in prison. He completed that sentence in June of 2017. With justice finally served, Chatim could now grieve the loss of his brother. But even that was stressful. I'm really glad we're able to bring you this story now. It's about a young man who has seen tragedy for pretty much all of his life and how he's turning to Calgarians for support tonight. He and his brother escaped death in Sudan. They lived in a refugee camp and managed to find their way here to Calgary. He lost his brother here, though, to murder. As Nancy Hicks reports, he now just wants a proper burial site to honor him. Chatim visits Galak's gravesite almost every day. I just pray, talk, say stuff that we had in the past, trying to regret 
things that I didn't tell him when he was alive. What's missing is a headstone, a true symbol of the man Galak was. It's so hard right now with financially everything. I can't afford uh, to put the headstone on him, on someone who I love really much. I spend most of the time coming to visit him. There's no place to come see him. So it's just really, really bothered me. A GoFundMe account was set up to help Jatim raise money to purchase a headstone for his brother's grave. Calgarians rallied around him, and I was there the day he finally chose a memorial to honor Gatlak. So was Detective Dave Sweet. I waited for so long, long, long time to just get this done. The time we got it done today is just so amazing. And it just shows, again, like the support of Calgarians and the generosity when, when people are really down on their luck and, um, you know, have gone through such tragedy that the community is still willing to embrace and, uh, and come forward, you know, step up. Like, I don't even know any of these people. I never met them. Like, there's just so kindness. Like, I, I never knew the society was this caring. Every day, Chatim works to honor his brother's memory. This year, he will graduate from university with a degree in sociology. But he told me none of his successes feel meaningful because he's all alone. I wish my mother was there, or, you know, my brother was there. It's still like, like all of this thing that I do, all the thing I make in life, it just, oh, like they always come with a different thought, like, they never, like, deep, deep inside me, I never feel happy about them. Even getting a job, going to school. Like, I personally don't feel happy about it because I feel like people who deserve to be there are not there. Even, you know, graduation from school, like, I thought my brother would be there. Chatim talks to his mother once a week. She's currently in Kenya in the Kakuma refugee camp. Every time he talks to her, he learns something new. Interestingly, when Gatlak and Jatim first came to Canada, they thought their last name was Metkerjok. However, they later learned that was a nickname for their father. Their last name is actually Thorkerjok. Jatim recently legally changed his name to Match. Even now, life for Jatim is a challenge. After he pays his rent and bills, he sends everything he has left to support his mother, siblings, and several other family friends. So currently I'm supporting uh, 12 people and I'm trying like my best to support him right now. Like, you know, even though with a lot of uh, responsibility on my plate. On the day we did the interview for this episode, he reminded me how much he sacrifices daily to help his family. Sometimes I skip days, like I don't want to eat so that I can save that money and give it away. His dream is to be able to have the rest of his family come to Canada. I was so lost when I lost my brother. So I tried to apply for my mom to come here and finally, you know, and then I just got rejected. So I tried two times and it's tough like you know I would um, I would try they would reject it and I try and reject it and it just becomes something very difficult I can't take it no more as a tough bottle 
And it's just really, especially with this pandemic where I just go home and be alone, it's becoming heavy, heavy and heavy. But he's not giving up and hopes one day a miracle will happen, that someone will help him and his mother and siblings will be granted asylum and be able to come to Canada. He wants to take her to Gatlak's gravesite so she can finally see the headstone that bears his brother's photo and some of his favorite things, a soccer ball, a Bible, and his favorite number, six. There are also words engraved, brother, father, son, gone and will never be forgotten. Gatlak's legacy lives on through his son. He became a father after he died. Gatlak taught Chatim to have the heart of a lion, and now he's passing the lessons on to his nephew, looking out for him like his brother did. I want to thank Chatim for sharing his story, and thank you for listening. Crime Beat is written and produced by me, Nancy Hickst, with producer Dila Velasquez. Audio editing and sound design is by Rob Johnston. Special thanks to photographer-editor Danny Lantella for his work on this episode. And thanks to Chris Bassett, the acting VP of National and Network News for Global News. I would love to have you tell a friend about this podcast, and you can help me share these important stories by rating and reviewing Crime Beat on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can find me on Twitter at Nancy Hickst, on Facebook at Nancy Hickst Crime Beat, and I'd love to have you join me for added content on Instagram at nancy.hickst. That's N-A-N-C-Y dot H-I-X-T. Thanks again for listening. Please join me next time. A gunman on the loose in a quiet coastal town. By morning, 22 people were dead. I'm Sarah Ritchie. I live in Halifax, and I'm a reporter for Global News. On my new podcast, 13 Hours, Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre, we'll examine every hour of this tragedy to try and piece together what happened and what could have been done to prevent it. You can listen to 13 Hours, Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.